Book 9 Speaking to him then answered Odysseus of many devices, Lord Alcanoas, most distinguished among all the people, it is indeed both good and agreeable, hearing a singer, noble as this one is, most like to the gods in his singing. For I think there is nothing of greater perfection or pleasure than at a time when festive delight holds all of the people. In their houses the feasters are listening well to a singer, sitting in orderly rows, and beside them tables are filled with victuals and meat, and the wine-server draws wine out of the mixing bowl, then takes it around, and he fills up each of the goblets. This is to my own thinking a time most lovely and pleasant. Now is the heart inside you determined to ask of my grievous sufferings, so that I groan yet longer in sorrow and anguish? What is the first thing, then, what later that I shall recite of all my woes? For the gods in heaven have given me many. Now to begin, my name I will tell you, in order that you may know it, and then, when I have escaped from the pitiless doomsday, I may remain your friend, though my home be far at a distance. I am Odysseus, the son of Laertes, who am among all men noted for crafty designs, and to heaven my fame has ascended. Ithaca, bright in the sun, is my home. Thereon is the peak of Neritos, trembling with leaves, most eminent. Numerous islands lie in the sea there around, each one of them close to another. They are Dulichian, Same, and also wooded Zakynthos. It lies low in the sea, and the farthest of all of the islands out toward dusk. In the distance the rest face dawn and the sunshine, rugged but fine in the youths that it nourishes, nor is there ever anything else I can see that is sweeter to me than my country. Now it is true I was held by Calypso, the glorious goddess, there in her spacious cavern. She wanted to make me her husband. So in the same way Circe, the guileful nymph of Aiaia, held me there in her palace and wanted to make me her husband. Nevertheless, she never persuaded the heart in my bosom. Nothing is sweeter, it seems, than a man's own country and parents, even for one who settles abroad on a bountiful homestead, somewhere distant, in foreign domains and apart from his parents. Now then, let me relate my return with the many afflictions which at the time I parted from Troy Zeus loaded upon me. To the Ciconians drove me, the wind that from Ilion bore me, Ismaros, where I ravaged the city and ruined the people. Out of the city we took their wives and their many possessions, sharing them, so as we left, no man was deprived of his portion. There, although I commanded that we should at once on our nimble feet take flight, they, childish in folly, would not be persuaded. There much wine they were drinking, and great was the number of sheep they killed on the shore of the sea, and of swing-paced crooked-horned cattle. Meanwhile, fleeing Ciconians summoned Ciconian tribesmen who were their neighbors, at once more warlike and stronger in numbers, living up-country, and highly accomplished in fighting with men on horseback, well-skilled, too, in fighting on foot when the need rose. 
They came soon, in the manner of flowers or leaves in their season, early at dawn. Then truly a doom most evil from Zeus we had. We were so ill-fated that manifold woes we would suffer. All of the warriors stood by the swift ships fighting the battle. Throwing their bronze-tipped spears, each side kept striking the other. While it was morning as yet, and the sacred daylight was waxing, we stood holding them off, though they were much stronger in numbers. But as the sun turned downward, the time when oxen are unyoked, then the Ciconians carried the battle and beat the Achaeans. So out of each of the galleys were six of my well-grieved comrades slaughtered. The rest of us fled, escaping from death and destruction. Farther along we sailed from the place. In our hearts we lamented, glad to flee death as we were, the destruction of our dear comrades. Nor would I let my tractable ships go forward before some crewmen had called three times on each of the wretched companions who died there in the plain, brought down by Caconian spearmen. Then at the ships, cloud-gathering Zeus, set boreous storm winds raging in furious tempest, the earth and the seaway alike he hid in a thick cloud cover, and night rushed down from the heavens. Plunging their bows in the water, the galleys were driven, the sails were shredded to tatters to three or four rags by the force of the storm winds. All these, fearing destruction, we lowered and stored in the galleys. Eagerly then we rode on forward and into the mainland. There two nights, and as well two days, unbroken, incessant, we lay eating our hearts in weariness mingled with sorrow. But when the fair-haired morning had brought full light on the third day, setting the masts upright and the white sails hoisting upon them, we sat down, and the wind and the steersmen guided us forward. Now I would have arrived unscathed in the land of my fathers, but as I rounded the Malian headland, the wave and the current, Boreas too, beat me from my course, past Kithera drove me. Nine days then I was carried from there by the ruinous storm winds over the fish-thronged sea. On the tenth to the lotus-eaters' country we finally came, where people eat flowery victuals. There we went out onto the land and drew up fresh water. Quickly the comrades took their supper beside the swift galleys. But then, when of the food and the drink we all had partaken, some of the comrades I sent forth to explore and discover what sort of men, what eaters of food, might live in the country. Two of the men I chose, and a third I sent as a herald. Quickly departing, the men met up with the lotus-eaters. For these comrades of ours, those lotus-eaters devised no loss or destruction, but gave them flowers of lotus to feed on. Any of them who ate of the honey-sweet fruit of the lotus wished no more to return us a message or take his departure. Rather, they wanted to stay right there with the lotus-eating people to feed on lotus and always forget their returning. These men, weeping, I led by force to the galleys and dragged them onto the hollow ships, where I bound them under the benches. Then straightway I ordered the rest of the trustworthy comrades, quickly, without lost time, to embark on the swift-sailing galleys, lest some eat of the lotus and wholly forget their returning. Hastily then they boarded and took their seats at the oarlocks, 
Sitting in rows, they beat their oars on the silvery sea brine. Farther along we sailed from the place, in our hearts we lamented. After a time we came to the land of an arrogant, lawless race, the Cyclopes, who put their trust in the gods undying, so that they plant no plants with their hands, neither do any plowing. Rather, the crops all grow unsown and without cultivation, grains like barley and wheat, and the vines which yield them a full rich wine from the grapes, and the rainfall of Zeus grows them to perfection. These men have no meetings for counsel nor customs of justice, but they keep their abodes on the peaks of the loftiest mountains, where in the hollow caves each one of them governs as master over his children and wives, and they take no care of each other. There is a fertile island that spreads outside of the harbor, not very near the Cyclopes domain, nor again very distant, covered with woods, and upon it are wild goats, countless in number, since no coming and going of people prevents them from roaming. Neither do hunters with dogs ever land there, men who in forests suffer afflictions as they hunt game in the peaks of the mountains. Nor is it occupied by sheep flocks grazing or plowlands, but it remains through all of its days unplowed and unplanted, utterly empty of men, and to bleating wild goats gives pasture. For the Cyclopes possess no galleys with cheeks of vermilion, nor are there shipwrights found among them, such men as would make them well-benched galleys, and these might carry them forth to arrive at each of the various cities of men, in the manner that often men sail over the sea in vessels to visit each other. They would have made this island a settlement pleasant and useful. For it is not at all bad, but would bear all things in their seasons, since there are meadows on it by the shores of the silvery sea brine, soft and sufficiently watered, the grapevines never would perish. There also are smooth arable lands, deep grain they would harvest always in season, for under the surface the soil is most fertile. There is a port, good moorage, in which no hawser is needed, nor need anchors be cast, nor the stern be tied by its cables. But having beached their vessels, the sailors could stay till the time their hearts roused them to depart, and the breezes were blowing upon them. Then at the head of the harbor is flowing a stream of bright water, rising from under a rock. Black poplars are growing around it. There we sailed to the shore. Some god it was who was guiding us through the murk of the night, since nothing was clear to our vision. For our ship was engulfed in a deep mist, nor did the moon shine down on us out of heaven, but by the thick clouds it was hidden. There with our eyes nobody could catch any sight of the island, nor indeed did we even observe the long waves that were rowing into the shore, not until we were beaching the well-benched galleys. After the galleys were beached, we next took all of the sails down, then ourselves disembarked, on the tide-heaped sand of the seashore. There on the beach we slept and awaited the glorious morning. <laughs>